Hello. Welcome to Hungry Girls. Tell me this. Yes. What? How would you react <laughs> if there was a knock at your door and um, there was a group of children dressed as swallows <laughs> singing a song demanding the owners of the house, you, that's you in this, yeah. to give them food, threatening to cause mischief if the owners of the house refused? The ancient Greek writer Athenaeus, <laughs> Athenaeus of Naucratus um, records in his book The Dipnosophists, apologies um, to any ancient Greeks listening for my <laughs> pronunciation, um, that in ancient times the Greek island of Rhodes had this very custom. Mm. Perhaps an ancient antecedent to this week's theme Halloween! Um, Probably, it's like Hungry Ghost Christmas, really. Halloween. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, very much the premier cultural event in our calendar. Absolutely. It's located at the end of the spookiest month of the year. Yeah, um, mainly spooky because of Halloween. Well, yes, exactly, but the build-up. Um, yeah, summer's over. The night's drawing the season in. of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Yes, the ghosts um, are walking. The ghosts are walking. Well, you, I'm sure you know probably some... Background on Halloween, where it came from. Yep. Go on in. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's actually many different things, but what I was mostly reading about was um, uh, Sapwin or Sowin, which Sowin, is yeah. Yeah, um, a Celtic festival. Mm. Um, that obviously, a lot, well, with many of these things, you get the same with Christmas and Easter. You know, how is it? How are these kind of modern Christian traditions related back to ancient Celtic traditions? But it seems there is quite a good link between. Um, this, you know, Sowin, uh, Sowain, um, celebration that was celebrated in, in kind of, well, Ireland primarily, but also parts of Scotland, um, as one of the four main Gaelic seasonal festivals, mm-hmm. um, again, linked to, uh, what we were just kind of talking about, kind of the end of summer, um, the start of winter, yeah. bringing in the harvest, start the, the dark half of the year, the dark half of the it. year, exactly. Yeah, is that, so the idea with those Celtic traditions is that um, that time of year is when the threshold between our world and the other world, as they call it, mm. which is the world of like uh, fairies, spirits, possibly spirits of dead people, dissolves. Right, the and barrier so the barrier, weaker. Yeah, the yeah. veil is thin. And so these spirits um, sort of enter our domain temporarily. So... Um, there's this tradition of um, uh, a place would be laid at the table for dead family members. Mm. Um, and uh, it was believed that dressing up in costume um, as like, you know, skeleton or similar uh, protects you from harmful spirits because they'll see you and they'll just think you're one of them. Yes. Which is quite clever. Yeah. Um, but also it's the idea of in the interest of going around collecting food and donations on the behalf of departed um people and then modern trick-or-treating originates with leading on from that it was this thing of they called it guising mm. short for disguising or souling we talked a bit about like hobby horsing going yeah. around um the Mary lured and stuff um and then obviously nowadays trick-or-treating mm. um got a few Good examples of trick-or-treating gone wrong, if you'd like to hear it. (laughs) Absolutely. So this is, I like this one a lot because this is, um, this is close to home. This is, this is in Manchester. Yeah. uh, Actually in Oldham. But um, I'll read you the headline. Drug user who mistakenly handled, handed bags of cocaine worth £200 instead of sweets to police officers trick-or-treating children (laughs) escapes jail. So is that the ending? Oh, good um, place Apprentice Pamelby to Donald Jr. Green fished in his pockets for a bag of Haribo sweets to give the youngsters. They instead pulled out a plastic pack containing eight snap bags of cocaine he bought for £200 earlier that day. He dropped the drugs into the goodie bags carried by the children, aged eight, six and five, (laughs) who were out playing trick-or-treat, escorted by their father and off-duty policeman. (laughs) The 23-year-old defendant then closed the door, went back inside the house and put his hand in his pockets to get out his drugs, but instead pulled out Haribo sweets. <laughs> he immediately realised what had happened, went on foot, then by car, scouring the streets of Oldham to find the youngsters. 
But um, sadly, the officer, PC Narc, had already yeah. reported it. Um, another one, North Dakota this time. Yeah. Um, West Fargo, Fargo Moorhead, West Fargo. Uh, she sparked rage among neighbours and parents after taking it upon herself to distribute, quote, fat letters to children who she de- deemed overweight who turned up <laughs> on her doorstep trick-or-treating. The woman who only... I can't, can't speak. The woman who only identified herself as Cheryl told parents she would not be giving their children sweets if she decided they had weight issues. That's going to be very difficult in America. Yeah. Middle America. Sparking a backlash of sorts, some parents in North Dakota called the police. This is what she, um, this is how she let parents know in the form of a mm. printed note. Yeah. And it's got like a clip art pumpkin. And then it says, happy Halloween and happy holidays, neighbor. You're probably wondering why your child has this note. So she actually handed it to the <laughs> children that she deemed to be. Um, it says, have you ever heard the saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Well, I'm disappointed in the village of Fargo-Moorhead, West Fargo. Your child is, in my opinion, moderately obese and should not be consuming sugar and treats to the extent of some children this Halloween season. My hope is that you'll step up as a parent and ration candy this Halloween and not allow your child to continue these unhealthy eating habits. Wow. Thank you. Did it work? Oh, I wouldn't have thought so. (laughs) Wouldn't have thought so, but don't know. Um... What else we got Halloween? Bobbing for apples? Yes. Did you know that um, it was brought in by the Romans? I did not know that, no. Well, now you know. <laughs> um, I was reading about this. There's another game. Um, where, well, this, well, first, so this is the the Roman antecedent of bobbing, bobbing apples. Was young unmarried people would try to bite into an apple floating in water or hanging from a string. The first person to bite into the apple would be the next one allowed to marry. And then, interestingly, that was appropriated, apple bobbing was appropriated into the Irish festival of Sawain mm. because apples are a sign of fertility and abundance. Yes. Um, so maybe we'll get onto that a bit later, how things are like appropriated and, and then back appropriated and mm. stuff. But, but um, there's a much more fun sounding parlour game I came across, which yeah. was traditionally in, in the UK it was a Christmas thing, but in the US apparently it was a Halloween thing. Uh, it's called Snapdragon. Heard of that? Uh, no, I don't think I have. So, you play Snapdragon thusly. Mm. Take a wide, flat plate, cover it with raisins and almonds, carry the plate into a dark room and douse the fruit and nuts with brandy. Ignite the brandy, and then plunge your hands into the flames and eat as many of the boozy snacks as you can without getting burned. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds Sounds great. good fun. It was that Roman one as well? Um... Not sure, but uh, it's mentioned in Shakespeare apparently a few times, and um, it sounds like good fun. Very good. Going back a little bit to uh, the Romans and how kind of Halloween came to be when it was. So originally, the All Saints Day in the Christian uh, liturgy was around the 13th of May, which also linked back to um, when the the ancient Roman festival of the dead. Um, But... In the 8th century, the Pope um, decided to move it to October-November time because there were so many people flocking to Rome to celebrate death during the hot summer months uh, that actually it was getting a little bit dangerous and causing, causing yeah. quite a lot of deaths. Yeah, I can imagine. So uh, that's why they kind of moved it um, to later in the year, which actually in northern parts of the Roman, well, not the Romans, but at that stage, the Christian world, places like Ireland and, and Scotland, where they were already celebrating so Wayne and, and similar kind of events at that time of year. So it naturally fitted into what was going on up there and kind of became that All Saints Day across across Western Christendom. Interesting. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, one, I mean, probably the ultimate um, symbol of Halloween becoming, well, appropriated, but changing with, you know, different cult- dominant cultural norms and stuff the pumpkin is the symbol of halloween the humble pumpkin not a native british veg no it's from the new world it's from the new world it's a type of squash and the new world's really commandeered halloween <laughs> yeah they really have uh, for commercial reasons yeah in, in britain before it did exist in, in swain there's examples of people 
carving out mm. a turnip. Exactly. Um, I don't know if you... I mean, they still, I know, on the Isle of Man, use turnips. Right. Um, or in fact, traditionally, it wasn't just any turnip. It was the veg known as the mangle wurzel. Oh. If you know what that is. I don't know what that is. But it's, a t- it's a type of, like, turnip swede type thing that they they use uh, over the winter to in the pl- like in the place of crops and fields right i don't know why but i think maybe it give, keeps the soil moving keeps over, it, right? it gives yeah. the sheep eat it and stuff right. but, um but i mean if you want more wurzel content there's some coming next week <laughs> yeah so keep an eye out for <laughs> that. that one um, um but i would i'd imagine carving a turnip is going to be a lot more difficult, difficult than carving yeah. a pumpkin and they look i mean i've seen these ones they still do on the Isle of man like a turnip with a face carved into it is horrifying to behold. Yes. <laughs> it's really scary, like properly scary looking. Um, but the well, one theory um, of where lighting, uh, carving, and then lighting either a pumpkin or whatever it is turnip mm. comes from is uh, again from Ireland. The story of Stingy Jack, mm. aka Drunk Jack. Yeah. A.K.A. Jack O'Lantern. Oh! <laughs> which is where that comes from, yeah. Um I was reading about this, and uh, so supposedly they... Have you heard of the, the phenomenon of the will-o'-the-wisp? Yes. Like a, over a marsh or something. Mm. And a ghostly light seen at night time. Yeah. Uh, get it in a lot of folklore. Like, yeah, yeah, and some, like... People don't really know, like... I think it's a documented phenomenon. Mm. Some people think it's like swamp gas spontaneously combusting or but more likely well so um what is also known as is by its latin name which is ifnis fatuus foolish fire mm. but i read that as ignis flatus fart fire <laughs> i just wanted to include that um swamp gas swamp gas yeah exactly uh but one story piece of folklore that has um emerged to explain the will of the wisp and has connections to Halloween is the story of Stingy Jack, a drunkard who bargains with Satan and is do- doomed to roam the earth with only a hollow turnip to light his way. Mm. Um, would you like to hear the story? Absolutely. It goes thusly. This is from this is verbatim. I'm not going to read the whole thing verbatim, but this is from a children's book from the 19th century where it was documented. Back in the shadowy times of long ago lived a man, Jack by name. He lived on the banks of a stream close by a ford and was known far and wide as the meanest, most churlish and inhospitable old curmudgeon in the land. A beggar would never think of asking even for a crust at his door, for well he knew the surly reception in store for him. So one day Jack's walking through the woods and he finds an old man in need. Right. And uncharacteristically decides to take pity on him and offer him a bed for the night. And the stranger, luck would have it, turns out to be an angel. Oh. Um, who grants Jack three wishes in gratitude. Um, and uh, Jack has a think. And in classic selfish Jack style, <laughs> he says, I should like that whoever shall sit in my special chair shall never be able to lift the chair from its place, nor get out of it until I allow him. I would so he's got anyone sits in his chair they get stuck in the yeah. chair. Then he says, "I would look. Uh, I would have the hand that touches anything in my toolbox on the wall, for Jack was a cobbler, mm. unable to move the box or take the hand out until I give him permission. Lastly, I would have whoever pulls a branch from the sycamore outside my door, unable to let go until I say so. Because people take my awls, that's a cobbler's tool, mm. and pluck my tree, and I will not have it." Presumably also sit in his chair. Um, so the, the angel grants his wishes, but he's clearly a bit cheesed off with Jack's decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, reason being, from that, so after that, consequence of that, from that moment, Jack was excluded from heaven for he had eternal blessedness for the asking, but he asked it not. So he had three selfish wishes. Uh, okay. Lost his chance yeah. to get to heaven. He lived a prosperous but loveless life. Mm. Um and there's a knock on his door and it's a minion of the devil sent to drag Jack to hell but Jack being a wily old sort um, offers the devil's minion a seat 
Mm. And he sits in the chair. Um, and in Jack's own seat, the servant sits, and there's a fa- and there is fastened tight. Jack takes his flail and, without fail, flogs him left and right. And as he scored, the flunky roared. At length, he firmly swore that if set three, from thence he'd flee and never come back more. Another minion is sent, <laughs> um, and this time Jack says, uh, oh, "I need to." fix my shoes first because I can't crawl to hell with you. Yeah. Um, so put your hand in that box over there and get get me my all. Puts his hand in the box, gets stuck. Jack hits him with his flail. And then the devil himself comes to uh. get Jack. And um, Jack says, all right, look, you've got me. I'll come with you to hell. But you either have to get me a stick because I can't walk very well. Well, he would have to carry me all the way there. <laughs> so the devil goes outside and gets tr- grabs a bough from the sycamore tree, gets stuck. Um, and so Jack now has um, got himself in a position where he's banned from heaven, heaven. and he's uh, outfoxed the devil, so yes. he can't get, he's not going to go to hell. So he's doomed to wander the earth. There's an alternative ending to that story, though, which I prefer, Okay, if you allow me. Yeah, please. <laughs> Um, this is the alternative ending so he's seen the angel he's done all that he's got himself barred from heaven yeah and then he's drunk and wandering through the countryside one night and he comes upon a body on a cobblestone path with an eerie grimace on its face and he realises he realises it's the devil himself come mm. to take him to hell um, but Jack has one last request and he asks the devil to let him drink ale before he goes to hell so the devil says sure why not takes him to the local pub classic um, and supplied him with many alcoholic beverages upon quenching his thirst Jack asked Satan to pay the tab for the A <laughs> much to his surprise because Satan doesn't carry money <laughs> uh, and so Jack convinced Satan to turn himself into a silver coin with which to pay the bartender mm-hmm. and then change back to his normal form when he's not looking Yeah, so he changes himself Satan, impressed by Jack's unyielding and nefarious tactics, (laughs) changes himself into a coin, and then Jack grabs him and puts him in his pocket, which also contains a crucifix. Oh! So the devil is now unable to change himself back. So he's a coin forever. Coin devil. Coin guy. Um, And so Jack then says, "I'll, I'll let you, I'll take you out of the pocket if you spare my soul for 10 years. Right. So ten years pass. The devil comes back, and um, Jack says, "Can I have one last apple to feed my starving belly?" And the devil agrees, climbs up an apple tree, and then Jack surrounds the apple tree's base with crucifixes. He's got him basically with the same tactic. <laughs> He's done it again. He's done it again, and um, so again was doomed to uh, wander. Wander the earth with only a turnip. Yeah, so he's given the turnip, uh, from what I recall from my research, by when he did die, he went up to St. Peter's Gate and, and he was told, because of all the other things, his sinful life and the fact that he was already banned from heaven, that he wasn't coming in. And he went back down to hell and he couldn't get into hell for the reason stated. But Satan uh, gave him an ember light to take away and to guide him around the earth and that was uh, a light inside a hollowed out turnip Um, and that's where obviously we get the name Jack of the Lantern yeah exactly it's a weird story in a way because I don't know why Jack because it's almost like Jack wants to go to hell rather than wander around the earth because he asks Satan if he can go to hell yeah but I'd rather wander around the earth yeah, I think he just was at a loss because bored. Yeah, you know, you don't, wandering around the earth is in its own way a curse. Um, but right. then, obviously, yeah. So we got the turnips. The Americans went and turned it into pumpkins. Yeah. What do we use now in this country? Pumpkins. Pumpkins. They've done it back to us. Yeah. That is a phenomena called the pizza effect. Reverse colonialism. Reverse colonialism. Exactly. Pizza effect. Yeah. So the pizza effect um, is a very interesting. Um, 
phenomena that's observed within kind of sociology and world culture. Um, it's called like, or also known as like the humanetical feedback loop um, or self-orientalization, uh, which is interesting. But it was coined by um, an Austrian-born Hindu monk um, called Agahenda Narbarati uh, in 1970, and he concluded um that and why it's called the pizza effect was that pizza was a dish that was present in small certain areas of southern italy naples calabria um sicily um but certainly wasn't a pop a, a widely popular italian dish um until all you know lots of immigrants from those places that those places went to america made pizza into the phenomena that is in in that country and then you know, tourists and other visitors coming back to Italy kind of made the pizza in Italy the phenomenon it is today. Every restaurant from, you know, Milan down to, you know, Sicily, Palermo has multiple pizza restaurants, mm-hmm. um, which this guy was saying didn't really exist before this yeah. kind of reverse uh, colonization. Lots of people have said actually that there were loads of pizza restaurants, so it's named Pizza Effect erroneously, but they have. Um, they have uh, the name has stuck, nevertheless. So this is an example of obviously turnips were the original jack o' lanterns in the British Isles in Ireland. The Americans took it and made it into pumpkins, and then we now use pumpkins and and kind of forgotten our old yeah. traditions yeah, in, in that respect. Um, and because this guy was a, a Hindu uh, monk, even though he was Austrian born, but he pulled out lots of examples from kind of the the Indian subcontinent of this phenomena being observed so for example yoga um he said that uh the type of yoga that we now recognize as yoga which is called postural yoga to do with you know postures essentially and poses um whilst some gurus did do that version of in in india it only really became popular in the west in kind of the 20th century and then re-exported back to india and now obviously mm-hmm. it's you know people go to india to learn that kind of yoga yeah. go on retreats and stuff um but it was never it was never that big in India until it kind of came back from the West. Mm. Um, similarly, that they they uh, talk about the uh, Bhagavad Gita, um, Bhagavad Gita, um, which although it was always kind of held in high esteem by Hindus, only really became got its current prominence when kind of Western scholars went mm. looking for a Hindu Bible right, and yeah. said we you know there needs to be one text, and that's when it became yeah, yeah. the one the one text. Hmm. Um, and then another really interesting one from the world of Halloween, um, which is really recent, is uh, obviously from uh, one of our, our favourite film franchises, James Bond. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just a bit. So the 2015 film Spectre, um, at the, the opening, um, the cold open of that film, Bond is walking around Mexico City and there's a Day of the Dead parade going on. Um, obviously Day of the Dead being kind of a Mexican equivalent to all uh, Saints Day and All Hallows Eve etc um, and but Day of the Dead parades are not really a thing that has ever happened within mm. this, that celebration of that festival but given the popularity of the film now in Mexico City they have a huge annual Day of the Dead parade that hundreds of thousands of people go to mm. that you might think was an ancient thing but it's actually just a spin-off of a film they made there interesting isn't it yeah, um, I, I will say for the Yanks that a pumpkin is far better suited to the task of carving and Absolutely. lighting than. I mean, it's much bigger. Mm. It's uh, easier, softer to. Yes. Not still not that easy, but easier to much carve easy, out. Yeah. Um, it's orange, so it glows. It's orange, so it glows. Yeah. Whereas a pumpkin, I don't imagine much. Sorry, a turnip, I don't imagine much light passes through they're very dense yeah (laughs) extremely dense um yeah but yeah that's why um we tend to think of like that sort of cultural appropriation type thing as being like often either colonial or like commercial in nature Mm. so that's why just when i came across that thing of sawain having it absorbed the thing of turnips yeah obviously it always happens all the time has always happened but um uh it's like a historic example of it just happening organically, like without, you know, no cynic, no cynicism involved. Yeah, well, yeah, people do say it's it was one of the holidays, maybe on our side, like Valentine's Day, it's got the most kind of cynicism about it in mm. this country. Um, 
but there are there, there are ancient roots to it. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah. Which is yeah. I think it's underrated. I think there should be more made of it. I, I think it should be probably bigger than Christmas. Yeah. Well, that's because the most spooky holiday. It's the spookiest <laughs> one of them all. Yeah. Um, will you be carving a pumpkin this year? Probably not. Haven't done it for a few years. Um, it's not worth the effort in my experience. It's quite a lot of faff. I think it's fun to do when you are a child or if you have children. Yeah. But um, as uh, a man without children, I simply can't be bothered. Yeah. Well, that's your prerogative. Um, <laughs> you be? Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, well, whatever the truth of old Stinky Jack... <laughs> Jack, Jack O'Lantern. Um, by all accounts, it was the booze that killed him. Yes. Uh, on which note, we are this week drinking a little cocktail given the epithet Vampire Negroni. Mm. In keeping with our mission statement of um, having a Negroni at least once every series. Yes. It's the flagship drink of the podcast. 100%. Open to sponsorship opportunities by yeah, Campari. By Campari, yeah, absolutely. Um, probably, in my opinion, the best cocktail. Incredible cocktail. But what makes this a vampire? Well, Negroni. Interestingly, so obviously a classic um, Negroni. You've got equal parts Campari, um, vermouth, and gin. Yeah. Um, this one substitutes one of the ingredients for the another Italian bitters by the name of Cynar, Cynar, C Y N A R, which is. An artichoke liqueur, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and some of them suggest that you replace the Campari with cyanide to bitters for bitters. But this one, we found, replaces the um, vermouth with cyanide. So it's a double bitters. And it is a bitter drink. <laughs> double bitter Negroni, yeah. But maybe that's why they call sweetness. it vampire. Um, make it a little bit harder to it stomach. Suck your, <laughs> suck your teeth yeah, exactly. Like you're sucking up blood. Um, but it's deep, deep red, like blood. Exactly, well. yeah. It's it similar yeah. to a normal Negroni, but I guess the cyanide is also... It's darker red, red than yeah. a normal Negroni, I think, yeah. because of the dark... The cyanide is very... It's almost black in colour. It's very dark brown. Mm-hmm. Um, but that got me to uh, reading about the subject of real-life vampires. Mm. Um, which are a thing, believe it or not. Yeah. People who identify as... Vampires, the definition of which um, is that they believe that they require to feed in one way or another on human energy for blood in order to feel normal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's, I mean, you can imagine it's it's quite a broad church. I mean, there's there are full like people who properly consume the blood of others, oh, called sanguinarians, um, and there's a whole subculture of like people who you know want to do this, and then other people who like want to uh, donate their blood to them wow. to do it. Um, Is there a which whole... obviously at least you know there's uh, safety practices involved and consent and everything like that. But some of those people who donate their blood then act like subservient to the vamp- <laughs> to the vampire. Some don't. Well, what's it but, called in uh, Dracula? Like your thrall or something? Is that uh, what? What's what? what when you're in uh, oh, in thrall sub- is that? Yeah, what? Yeah, it's like it's got a technical name in like vampire mythology, but it's right. your. Let me just Google it. Um, yeah. Um, it's like a th- in like Dracula and other vampire mythology, a thrall is a being that's kind of under the control of the vampire. Right, like um, Renfield. Exactly, yeah, Renfield yeah. is a thrall. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think there's some... Yeah, in fact, so there's a clinical condition called Renfield syndrome <laughs> marked by fixation on blood or blood drinking. Um, yeah, and there's... There are people for whom it's a sexual fetish. Of course. Um, there are some people who identify as vampires, sexual vampires, but they don't consume the blood of others. They just kind of... Um, they identify as like... A, it's almost like a succubus type thing. <laughs> so they, they think that by having sex with someone, they 
consume that person's, that person's energy. energy. Right. But uh, my favourite uh, type of self-identifying vampire is that there are people who identify as energy vampires. <laughs> which, if anyone's watched um, uh, What, what We Do in, in the Shadows, shadows Colin Robinson, obviously, yeah. is an energy vampire. Um, but it's also like, obviously, it's a reference to when people say, oh, you're an energy vampire, it's like those really, really boring people mm. who just sap your energy when they're talking to you. We like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, there are members of the vampire community who identify as psychic vampires, i.e. they... It's a bit unclear to me whether they're saying, like, you know, I'm not saying this is a good thing, it's just the way I am, but I get my energy from sapping other people's energy. Other but there's, there's a woman who's a quite famous sort of writer and um, personality in the paranormal world um, whose name is Michelle Bellinger or Bellinger and she she's worth watching an interview with actually she's got loads of interviews on, on YouTube she identifies as a psychic vampire right and she says she said there's two types of psychic vampire uh, apart from the ones who identify as it so the first type is, she says, like old Aunt Edna, who tells you about all about her cataracts and hemorrhoids and sucks everything out of you, and she's a little perkier by the end. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, you want to take your own eye out with a spoon. <laughs> the other type is the aggressive colleague who thinks of themselves as an alpha and tries to get reactions out of people and dominate them in order to make themselves feel better. Mm. So that's your energy vampires. And then there's, I guess, your Michelles, who just face up to it go yeah. oh, i'm an energy vampire yeah. but um in general this thing of like the uh vampire subculture and stuff is like you know they're not they're not saying they're not saying we live for are undead and live forever yeah yeah they're not weird they're just, <laughs> they're just, into <laughs> just going around stuff. drinking people's blood um yeah. do they dress like you know stereotypical vampires well, from the films so this is um i read a academic article by John Edgar Browning called The Real Vampires of New Orleans and Buffalo. And he says in, in that, that um, he says, quote, real vampires do not generally sleep in coffins, though certainly some have and do, and they do not claim to live forever. Aside from blood drinking and feeding on energy, a sizable number in the real vampire community prefers to don gothic apparel, though mm. certainly not all the time. Many will even don prosthetic fangs, a practice that for the most part is purely aesthetic, although it can and does serve a cultural need especially in New Orleans, where fangs contribute to intercommunal identification. So if you're in NOLA yeah. and you see someone flashing their fangs at you from across a bar or whatever, that's saying, I'm a vampire. <laughs> you know, want to yeah. come to a vampire party with me or yeah. whatever. Donate some blood. <laughs> Talking about um, blood and living forever, have you heard of this guy recently? He's been quite like social media things Brian Johnson who is the millionaire who's been so creepy receiving blood transfusions from his uh, teenage son in an attempt to slow down his ageing he wants to stay 18 forever yeah and he's like 50 odd he's like 50 odd the thing that's weird about that guy is yeah I've seen, I've seen his videos and stuff and he's like I, there's pictures of him when he was before he was doing all this mm. and he looked so much healthier before <laughs> like yeah. he looks like a vampire now he's yeah. really pale yeah yeah, yeah, and he didn't look like that before. No. Um, yeah, I just think life's too short, mate. Regardless of well, he's going to live forever. <laughs> I don't think he's going to live forever. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's the sort of person who would die at like sixty-five. Of yeah, just get hit by a bus. <laughs> hit by a bus or yeah, his extreme dieting on his on his yeah. app on his wearable tech app on his yeah. phone and get hit by a bus. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, this like the whole thing of. Um, people who identify as vampires is like, I think a big part of it is well, one of the things that that academic says is that it's like it's a def it's deliberately like a defiant culture. So it's like we've talked about quite often on this podcast. Like people who do stuff really is like just deliberately because it's transgressive. Mm. There's a bit of like a fuck you to society yeah. and stuff. Um, and it reminded me of we went to this museum in Savannah, Georgia, where was, there was a exhibit about the Church of Satan, Anton mm. LaBay. Anton LaBay? Yeah, yeah, LeBay. yeah. Um, And 
yeah, all this theatre about like uh, you know church of Satan, blah, 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 but it's actually it's not a religion at all, really. Like they don't believe in Satan, yeah, as a at all, yeah. If they do it as like uh, up yours to normal religion and stuff. And I, th- I think with it, there's an element in the vampire subculture of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favourite uh, vampire themed events, probably my favourite actually, is the Whitby Goth Weekend, mm. which happens. <laughs> Um, in the Yorkshire town of Whitby, which is one of the settings for Dracula. And I was there a few years ago, just coincidentally, around the time of the goth weekend. And it is funny walking around a little seaside town in England and seeing, like, goths. (laughs) People basically dressed like the Babadook. Yeah. Like, (laughs) window shopping at, like, Dorothy Perkins. (laughs) How, bit, like, how many people go? How many goths gather? Loads, I think. Yeah. I'd love to actually go there for the proper thing. Yeah. I think it'd be hilarious. That would be great. I yeah. once, um, a few years back, again, I went... Well, it was one of the first travel articles I ever wrote, actually. I went to Paris, um, and I met a guy who runs the world's only vampire museum. Mm. He's very much a vampire enthusiast. Yeah. Called Jacques Sargent. Does he drink blood? I don't think so. I was trying to get a measure for, like... Yeah. Um, uh, how into this is this guy actually because yeah. I went to his, his museum it's like I mean he's very learned like he's like he's an expert on gothic literature and stuff like that um, I was like looking at the shadows on the wall trying mm. to see how many I could count <laughs> <laughs> um, but his like half the collection is like really kitsch it's like hammer horror posters yeah. and like rubber mask like were- werewolf masks or whatever um, and just like trash basically and then the other half is like genuinely creepy stuff like he had a cat mummified which he'd found in Père Lachaise Cemetery Um, and yeah all sorts of weird shit but he said to me uh, because his whole thing is he wants to like do a PR rebrand for vampires because he thinks they've had a bad press over the years and he said I was raised in a harsh Irish, Irish Catholic school in Canada and I discovered very young that vampires can be nicer than Christians. Mm. So there's that point again. I think sometimes people that are into that are just so pissed off with yeah. having whatever religion rammed down their throat that <laughs> <clears throat> they want to uh, go a bit transgressive. Mm. More power to them, I see. We've obviously talked about real life vampires, or so called. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to meet a real life zombie? I'd absolutely love to meet a zombie. Well, get yourself to Haiti. Okay. Uh, because zombification... Not, not, not right now, maybe. Not right now. Well, or just, yeah, in general. Um, it's, uh, yes, yeah, some mental stuff going on in Haiti. Um, voodoo is a, like a very present part of mm. daily life in Haiti, and, and zombification is a, a part of that. Um, so much so that zombification is actually a crime under the Haitian penal code um, to stop people, um, you know, turning other people into zombies, basically. Um, And I read this study um, by uh, a guy called Roland Littlewood, who I I think was an anthropologist um, slash medic, um, and he did the study for The Lancet uh, in 1997. And him and his colleague went out to Haiti um, to talk to... Uh, zombies, the family, their family members, and um, bokus, which are essentially kind of witch doctors who are the people who are responsible for turning people into zombies right. in the first place. Um, really, to get to the bottom of what on earth is going on <laughs> here, because there are zombies in Haiti, um, and they. So they, we know it's actually, it's actually <laughs> true, is it? Well, there's they did the science, but basically right. they met three zombies um, who in their kind of, you know, research period. Um, and they did various tests from a Western medicine perspective on these people to kind of find out, are they really zombies um, or not? In in kind of the Haitian tradition, the zombie or, or someone becomes a zombie by having your um, soul essentially um, stripped from your body. And they do that by killing you. And then they put your soul in a bottle um, and then they reanimate your corpse um, using the same soul or no so this the yeah the, the corpse is soulless um so it's apparently dead you know limited communication shuffling around you know kind of typical zombie mannerisms 
let's yeah. say. Um, and the soul kind of remains in a glass jar. And traditionally, the only way to kind of free the person is to destroy the glass jar and the soul kind of go, well, won't go back to them. They won't become normal. They won't go back to normal, but they'll just be free to leave the to imprisonment of the the Boku, right. uh, who often kind of imprisons these people to work on his land or sell to other people for slavery reasons. Um, so they, what did the, the medical <laughs> test find? Well, yeah, it's quite interesting. So, and also part of it, part of the massive problem with this is that um, they, their graves are all above ground, so it's very easy to rob a grave. There's also right. not much medical testing. There's no... Um, Autopsies are rarely performed in Haiti, particularly in rural Haiti. Um, people just like, if someone, if they think a family member's dead, they put them in a tomb above ground that night. So, like, the, the chances of, chance of them getting it wrong, <laughs> burying someone alive, are extremely high. Yeah. Um, and the likelihood of grave robbery is, is heightened because they're all above ground and there's no limited security of you know, being physically six feet under. Anyway... So they went and met these these three zombies, um, and it's quite interesting. I won't go into too much detail on all of them because it's, it's very long winded. But they refer to all three of them as like what they were like before, how they died, and then how they were like afterwards. Um, so the, the first case was a, uh, a woman, a thirty year old woman called. Uh, they just called them by their abbreviated names, which was Fi. Let's call her Fee. Um, and she died uh, after a short febrile illness, was buried the same day in the tomb next to her house. Uh, three, days, three years later, she was recognised by a friend in a nearby village. Um, and her mother confirmed that it was her for a facial marking. Um, and they went into the uh, tomb, opened it up and found that where they buried her was, or they'd left her body, was just full of stones. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, she was admitted to psychiatric hospital and then subsequently released to her family um, upon which she um, kept her head in a lowered position walked extremely slowly and stiffly barely moving her arms her muscles had reduced in tone um, lacked any motivation did not respond to questions and would just murmur incomprehensible uh, words and was generally indifferent to kind of her surroundings and, and various events that were going on um, so they diagnosed her as being a zombie. And <laughs> uh, we're making sense of it. Yeah. I basically, I mean, I won't go through the other two examples, but they were pretty um, pretty similar. And what the kind of the Western scientists basically said was, um, so in the subjects of fee, who the, they... Um, generally think she may have been poisoned by um friend of the show pufferfish poison ah yes yeah. welcome yes <laughs> so they um the, apparently some research in japan has showed that using the pu- toxin of pufferfish can cause people to get very close to death but also then come back but um potentially with kind of reduced uh, neural capacity uh, and that's what they they think that the bokus are using to kind of zombify right. people Free um, labour for them yeah. and, and kudos. Exactly. And also there's lots of stuff wrapped up in like feuds between families and whatever, you know, arguments. I'm going to zombify your son because you robbed my land. So they talk about that in one of the other examples. In, one of the, in both of the other examples, actually, um, they it's just a, mica- a case of mistaken identity. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a family member has died and then... Um, in a nearby town, months or years later, they found, unfortunately, uh, you know, someone who's mentally challenged, mentally ill, and they've assumed that that's their child or relative who's been zombified. Different guy. To take them home. <laughs> and, take a completely uh, different guy. To, take them home, and then, yeah. And so this kind of happened in the um, in the research. So there was a, another one of the zombies they met. Um, they... But they were saying this is our daughter. She was zombified. She was taken to another village. We found her and took her, brought her home. And there was like evidence of like chain marks in her hands and stuff. Um, and they were like, you know, they were they were locking up her because she was a zombie and she was a slave. And anyway, the doctors took her back to the town that they got her from. And the townsfolk there were like, oh, this is this girl. She's like the daughter of these people. And so essentially, it seems like the first family had kind of missed case of mistaken identity and, and unfortunately kidnapped a small, a vulnerable 
girl right. and, and brought her home thinking it was their daughter, a dead daughter who'd been zombified. Wow. Um, it's absolutely bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, yeah. It's yeah. really interesting because it's like, um, I mean, I'm pretty credulous <laughs> in general, but even I find it hard, obviously, to accept the existence of a, of a zombie. Yeah. But um, at the same time, like, you know, if you ask people there, they'll be absolutely convinced that it's real. Absolutely. It's yeah. And so it's like, it reminds me of, um, you know, the Pendle witches. Mm. Like, obviously, Pendle's not far from where we are, Manchester, in Lancashire. And um, it was just very briefly for the uninitiated, it was uh, a famous witch trial in the early 1600s, I think, in England, um, of uh, a group of women, mostly women, also some men, but in Lancashire who were accused of witchcraft. And loads, of, I think 10 of them or something, ended up getting put to death. And it was a big precedent for the Salem witch trials, which happened later. It was a very, it was the first time a child's testimony was accepted in court. And this 10-year-old girl or something condemned her whole family to death for Gosh. witchcraft. But at that time, it was like, they... It wasn't just a case of, like, these people were completely innocent and they were just victims of this, um, you know, witch finders, whatever... It was like, for the most part, because they confessed to it. Mm. And so they believed that they were doing witchcraft. They did these spells, whatever. These people died. So everyone else thought that they'd been doing witchcraft. Yeah. Um, and so in a sense, they were guilty of witchcraft. Even though now we don't believe witchcraft is real, you know. It's like they intended to kill those people and then they... they they died. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, very but, um, interesting. Yeah, back then it's like they would have just been convinced that it was real. Yeah. Well, that's what they say in this about the zombies is, is in Haiti, zombies are a fact of life. And in the medical community, it's kind of a result of, you know, poisoning or mental illness. But like, it's a, it's a phenomenon they recognise. And then in kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the more rural communities, it's a spiritual thing and these people are made like this by mm. through sorcery and it's like, that is just fact. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's very, very it's interesting. interesting. Well, maybe we get a uh, Hungry Ghost school trip to Haiti lined up. Yeah, we should get old Roland Littlewood on to uh, no, I'd love that. see how he's gone. We should start getting some real, like, um, academics on Exactly, yeah. No disrespect to, you know, our previous guests. Yeah, but... Um, but some real scholarly heavy hitters. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And a final point on zombification, um, more uh, closer to home in, uh, well, Western Europe. Um, but in the uh, 1880s, um, there was a French physician called Jules Cotard who identifies, uh, conveniently enough for him, uh, something he called Cotard syndrome or no. Cotard's well, delusion. <laughs> Uh, or, or also known as walking corpse syndrome. Right. Um, and this is, a, I believe, well, it's obviously a mental illness. I believe it's very closely related to depression. Um, but it uh, leads to the individual believing that they are already dead and are rotting away. Wow. And they're, uh, quite often their organs are rotting away. Um, and in one of the cases that, that he originally identified, which was known as Mademoiselle X, um, she thought that she uh, had completely rotted away and her body parts didn't exist anymore and so she therefore didn't need to eat. Um, and she, similarly to her old friend Jack O'Lantern, was therefore confirmed to eternal damnation and could not die a natural death. Right. Uh, she died of starvation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then more recently, in uh, the 1990s, or actually in 1990, in... Um, there was a, a case in Scotland, so an individual um, was identified with Cotar syndrome in Edinburgh um, after his brain was damaged in a motorcycle accident. Um, he felt that he was like, like reality didn't exist anymore and that he had died in that motorcycle accident. Wow. And then after he was discharged from hospital, his mother took him to South Af Africa and he was convinced that he'd been taken to hell because <laughs> it was confirmed by it was how hot it was. Um, right. <laughs> he believed that South Africa was hell um, and that he died of sepsis um, which again had been a risk early in his kind of journey back to health but had been averted um, so he'd accepted by that point he hadn't died in a motorcycle accident 
Yeah, but he kept he, on thinking he was dying. He just kept on thinking he was either dead or dying of various things. So he thought it might be sepsis or then AIDS because he read a story about AIDS in the newspaper, um, and then or an overdose from a yellow fever injection, and then that he thought that the devil had borrowed his mother's spirit to show him around hell, aka South Africa. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a very very interesting delusion. Um, mm. These people who kind of think they're—I mean, it's obviously obviously extremely sad, but quite fascinating yeah I always find it those things where it, like someone has a brain injury and then some aspect of like their personality or, or consciousness just completely changes mm. it's like it's kind of creepy in a way but also like depressing is the wrong word but it's just like it's bizarre it's so like your whole mind and consciousness is just mm. located in, in yeah. your brain it's just like mad isn't it yeah but I suppose the alternative would be even creepier it yes. was external. Yes, you were in fact rotting um, away in, in hell. But, um, in South Africa on holiday. Yeah, very weird. Yeah. Well, certainly matches the Halloween theme. Definitely. Um, have you got anything else to add? I don't really have anything else to say. To be That's honest. it, I think. Just wishing everyone a particularly spooky Halloween yeah, this year. However you're celebrating. Bobbing some apples. Yeah. Um, trick-or-treating. Yeah. We used to do the old... Uh, if you don't get sweets, egg the house. <laughs> Classic. Um, um, I'd recommend people just... Don't do that. Carve a turnip and enjoy a vampire Negroni. Mm. And listen to this podcast. And do make sure it's a turnip. Yes. And maybe send us in your best efforts. Yeah. We'll put them um, on our Instagram. Yeah, we will. <laughs> We're desperate for content. Um, and we'll see you next week for the final episode in this series. Ooh. Ooh spooky. spooky. See you next Bye. time. Bye.